Hello, everybody, and welcome to the history of actor training in the British Drama School.、Uh, I do hope、um, you're enjoying these these podcasts if you if you're listening to them, and if you're about to listen to this one,、uh, well, I hope I hope I hope you enjoy it.、Uh, this week's going to be a slightly unusual one in that、um, I don't have a, a guest lined up, so I thought, in the interest of、uh, oh yeah, actually, in the interest of、um, Conversation. I, I would read a letter. I've suddenly occurred to me why it just popped into my head why I got the、um, the urge to do that, and it's because I'm I'm working on letters with some students at Rose Bruford. I think that's probably what's going on.、Um, but but a couple of weeks ago, I received a letter that I really enjoyed reading,、um, and I'm going to share that letter with you, and from there take a slight sort of、uh, departure and, and 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 talk about something related to the letter. So so.、Um, Yeah, just just to say, if you are enjoying these podcasts,、uh, you can support them in 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 three ways.、Uh, way number one is reviews.、Uh, I, I believe it's useful to get reviews. It helps the podcast reach other listeners.、Um, so there are various ways you can leave reviews. I think the I think the most common one is is on the Apple. Podcast site where you get your Apple podcasts.、Um, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you, thank you so much. Those people who have,、um, I don't even mind getting critical ones. By the way, I think somebody gave me a one star review and then took it down. I don't know what that that was about, but anyway,、uh, that's that's fine. I, I, I'm interested in what people think. The other way, or one of the other two ways, you can support the the podcast, of course, is to、uh, is to make a, a donation. They they do cost a, a small amount to to maintain and make, and a little bit of time. So again, hugely appreciated. Thank you so much to people who who've supported me in that way. Oh, word of mouth, I guess. But please do spread the word.、Um, if you have favorite episodes,、uh, tell people. And、uh, the the third way, which is now the fourth way, is to drop me a line on Robert Price eighteen sixty nine. At gmail dot com. That's Robert Price eighteen sixty nine at gmail dot com. If I ever don't reply, I, I really apologise for um for my my discourtesy. It's probably that I read your letter and and email and and enjoyed it and um and replied in my head. And then by the time I got to wherever I was going, I just just kind of got overwhelmed with with things. But but please keep sending me messages. I, I really enjoy them. They mean a lot.、Um, I'm very touched when people say that these podcasts are useful to them, either in their teaching or, as we'll hear in a moment, in in their learning. And, and a number of people have spoken to me,、um, people I've met at, at Rose Bruford and East Fifteen, who've who've got something from them. So that that's that's special. So、um, so thank you. The big news for the past couple of weeks,、uh, I think there are there are two big pieces of news.、Um, one of them is that Lambda has agree uh, has has um, Received degree awarding powers, taught degree awarding powers. The initials and the names change from time to time, but essentially, Lambda is now one of the, I think, the first drama school to be able to give out degrees. The relationship between the university and the drama school, and the drama school and the the degree in acting, the BA and the MA and the MFA and the The PhDs. It's it's a complicated history, and has gone through various stages. This is a further stage. At the moment, drama schools are in a, a strange sort of mix of the, the the kind of the famous drama schools, the the, the twenty or so that that have been part of the conference for drama schools, the NCDT, the various different versions of that. So, Rada, Lambda, Artsed, Guildhall, Lipper,、um, the Bristol Old Old Vic, the Royal Welsh College, the Royal Scottish. College, those ones, 
Rob, Birmingham Conservative, those ones, all of those ones. They sit in a kind of a variety of different relationships with institutions um, from being completely independent uh, with degrees validated by universities, sometimes in the receipt of what are called DADAs, Dance and Drama Awards, or them sort of more closely inside the university system, either as um, a department within a university. Uh, uh, East15, for instance, is a department of the University of Essex. Um, or... Uh, Central, I believe, is a college of the University of London, so it's it's sort of its its own autonomous thing within a larger thing. So there are various ways in which drama schools have um, moved towards or moved inside the higher education um, system, and that's that's for a variety of reasons. Um, the clearest of which was about gaining. Um, finance for their for their students it was really about how students were able to pay for the courses and when such things existed or in the different ways they've existed receive um sort of maintenance grants of various types from the discretionary to to the system as it is of loans at the moment so it's complicated but i think ah, the drama school is always on one this is one version of this story has had to sort of dance sometimes comfortably sometimes uncomfortably with other institutions in order to ensure its survival. So on a purely uh, practical level, there's also another movement, which is the idea of validating acting as a, as a, as a subject fit for um, uh, academic uh, sort of consideration and, and reward. So uh, some of the early pioneers of the drama school, Elsie Fogarty, um, who set up Central School, was always very interested in that side of things. And there were various diplomas and, and attempts to produce degrees. It wasn't until the 1960s that the first uh, acting course became a BA at Rose Bruford, I think, under Jean Benedetti's leadership. Um, but the, the the relationship seems to me to be a strange one, an ongoingly strange one, in that the institutions um, are doing this to, to ensure their survival. It's These are logical steps. And then those logical steps are, are presented to some degree as if they contain some kind of um, benefit to the students. And I'm not sure they always do. I don't think they often do much harm to the students. I think the core work of the drama school of training actors continues in in rooms where talented people talk to experienced people about, about difficult things and, and try to understand things that are sometimes um, elusive to understand. And, and we offer spaces where those things can be can be practiced um, and experienced, and that that fundamental activity uh, continues. It, it changes. Um, we change our aesthetics to some degree. We change our, our theories of acting. We move around in what we think um, performance can be or, or, or should be for. That's all. That's all good, and, and I think has always taken place. But then the, the sort of the risk it seems to me is we fill buildings up with with people doing other activities. And there's a kind of curious relationship, there always is, I think, between between the classroom teacher or classroom teaching and administration and sort of academic um, procedure. And so you often end up with a, a sort of a, a, a pay scale in a building where almost the less teaching you do, the more you get paid and the more power you have, but the more time you spend um, writing emails and, and reports and, and chairing committees. And maybe that's all just 
inevitable, but it does mean that the, the institution starts to generate a sort of a, a big body of staff and a big heavy workload, which is a sort of a curious game. I mean, I'm sure some people listening have been involved in in procedures where there's a kind of a a sort of a cheating that goes on, a, a sort of a, a f- needing to fill out this huge report in order to to get to this stage of a of a certain process. And although I'm not suggesting anything like a kind of moral turpitude, I'm just talking about the normal business. People do slightly bend things and slightly um, say things that aren't sort of entirely true. I myself have been through a, a process of receiving a, a, a sort of a, an academic um, award where I was I was given a bit of help by somebody and sometimes they were even I don't know sort of completing a few sentences or, or telling me what to to write and it becomes a sort of strange game um and that's I suppose that's just normal that's just the world but it, it it's always struck me that there's a, a paradox there and something which makes me uncomfortable which is that in the pursuit of of acting as an art form in in in, in thinking about that and attempting to understand that we often talk about truth um we understand that's a complex and nuanced thing and we're talking about truth in a way which is which is artistic and that's anyway i, I guess truth is a big word I, i'm sure conversations could be had about what it means anyway but but it seems risky to me um for an institution to be to be built on on any kind of dishonesty even on an unconscious level or a, a subtle level when it's in the pursuit of something sincere. And the other risk or problem or question I have, I suppose, is that as these institutions grow and produce more and more kind of activity around the activity, it costs money. It costs a lot of money. So if you go and do um, uh, a master's degree, a one-year course at some of the famous drama schools, that might cost you £25,000, something like that. That's a kind of a figure. And that money is not is not being spent on teaching. Um, and it's not being spent on costumes, and and it's not all being spent on on the gas bill. Some of it's being spent on keeping the institution going. So institutions become sort of machines that feed themselves, and that provides employment and um, and things for people to do. Maybe again, maybe that's just I don't know. I'm not I'm not a very clever person. Maybe that's just inevitable. But it does strike me. I've been doing a little bit of something recently. I hope they won't mind me saying, but I've been taking some classes. Uh, in in London, actually, I won't say who. I, it, it would be kind of anyway. I won't. But it's thirty quid, so I, I pay my thirty quid and I go. It's a Zoom thing. I go along and I do a class, and it's brilliant. I've been learning a lot. Um, I think I'd learn more in the room, and I'm hoping that will happen. But nonetheless, that's that's thirty quid. Um, I could do that three times a week. It would cost me ninety quid. Uh, that's that's even if I do that um, every week for the year. That's that's coming in at I don't know. Four four and a half grand or something. That's significantly less than my twenty five thousand. Uh, so I don't know. I wonder if the drama school will eat itself. I sometimes wonder if that's what's happening, and that as we move into this process of of the sort of on the one hand the deregulation, or even I'd, I'd like to call it the disestablishment, although I think that's a specific term to do with the Church of England in the in the nineteenth century. But I like the feel of it. So the the deregulation or the disestablishment of the drama school, if that if that's where we're going, and simultaneously we're moving to a place where drama schools become um, uh, places that can re- give de- have degree awarding powers, and then eventually maybe even become universities themselves, I don't know. Maybe the whole thing will will sort of 
change into something else or, or collapse in on itself. I don't know. Because for me, on some level, it's a simple, it's a simple activity. Um, so, uh, yes, sorry, went, went off on one there. Um, anyway, congratulations to Lambda for receiving taught degree awarding powers. I, I really hope that has implications that are, are genuinely positive for um, teachers and students. That would, that, would be, that would be wonderful, I think. So on to the, on to the letter and a, a discussion um, around the letter. The letter comes from Harry Bloor. So thank you, Harry. Thank you for your letter. And he writes, never done this before, quite exciting. He writes, hey, Rob, I'm currently partway through a binge of the recent episodes of your podcast while working night shifts at a factory over Easter. I'm writing this at the abhorrent hour of 4am. So firstly, thank you for making these otherwise insufferable nights bearable with your ongoing inquiry into the drama school. It gives me some sense of pleasure to be able to continue my actor training in some form while away from my school. COVID age first year at Manchester School of Theatre. I contacted you previously about Qigong practice and since found fantastic online classes. They help me immensely with connection to breath and a precise physical control. Thank you for your guidance. That's a pleasure. Harry, recommend anybody takes up um, some form of of Qigong. I don't know whether any of you um, listened to the the article from the University of Minnesota in 1966, I think, but Lee Strasberg mentioned in that um, in that conversation, he talks about Chinese energy work or Chinese breath work. I was really excited when I read that because I didn't know that the um, the route into the, the drama school of of Qigong goes back um, or, or some form of Chinese exercise. It would be related to Qigong goes back that far so so do do qigong it's brilliant i thought i might express my gratitude for the podcast and share some thoughts that i've had while listening to it in the chance that they're of any interest well they they certainly are of interest harry thank you very much harry writes discovering the history and roots of training in the british drama school helps me to demystify aspects of the training i think that when you're outside the drama school and when you first experience it it feels like a type of magic or an ancient ritual, something that came to some ancient grandmaster in a dream which you must now try to emulate. But finding out about the real, tangible people who pioneered these methods and how they became integrated into the training helps me feel less intimidated by them. I suppose there's argument on either side whether a teacher should explain the exact pedagogy of what they're teaching and why to their students. My teachers subscribe to the practice of not explaining the particulars of the work. I assume in not wanting us to intellectualise the work too much, but it helps me and interests me personally to discover the history. So thank you for helping me with my training. Well, that makes me really happy, um, Harry, um, that these podcasts are useful. Yeah, it's a really tricky one, isn't it? It's sort of an ongoing... Harry raises a few issues, and that's that's one that I want to just I think about for, for five minutes. Yeah, it's a, it's a real it's a real problem. I remember um, years and years and years ago, I was teaching at uh, RADA, and I also had a relationship with the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. So I'd worked at the Abbey Theatre, and I knew people who were teaching there, and especially I stayed in touch with the head of voice there, Andrea Ainsworth. And she said something to me that I sort of haunted me. She said that the students who were coming to her from British drama schools at that time, and they were often, not always, but often um, Irish students who'd gone off to train in the UK and then come back to Ireland to work, something that I'm going to do a podcast about soon, the Irish, the Irish um, acting student in the British Conservatoire. 
she said that she she thought that they they knew a lot. So when they came to her for a session, they had a very comprehensive understanding of their voice, of the things that, that they needed to work on, of stuff to do with accents and dialects. They were thoroughly, thoroughly well-trained in terms of knowledge, but that they couldn't necessarily do those things. So they knew about the, the stuff that you can know about, but they couldn't necessarily realise it. Curiously, something that... um uh the Russian pedagogue uh, Demidov um, said about students he trained under the Stanislavski system um, back in the 1920s, I think, um, that after training the students in the system, they had a, an incredible knowledge of the component parts, the elements of um, of uh, Stanislavski's theory, but, but couldn't necessarily do them. In fact, Demidov, I think probably slightly rhetorically, said that in some ways they'd got, they'd got worse. So... Those two stories, I think, provide a, a caveat to any teacher, which is that it's the handout, isn't it? It's that you give people a handout about something. If you're a, a, a good teacher or they're good students, you, you understand it. And then there's a sort of a temptation to feel like somehow you've got it. I'm always very nervous when students sort of say things like, yes, no, no we did... Um, we did Stanislavski in in term one, or no? We we looked at um, breathing in in term two, and you, I always sort of think, "Wow, I'm still utterly bewildered and fascinated by those things, and feel like I've barely got off the first page." So, on the other hand, just being confused, I think, is unhelpful too. So, another another thought I had reading Harry's letter was: I often think about my own training at the Central School of Speech and Drama as a voice teacher, which was an excellent training and was um, thoroughly well um, explained, except perhaps there were certain kinds of text exercise we did, often um, poems or political speeches or um, I think restoration prologues. There were sort of things that you did in a voice class. And I used to feel a kind of a, a sense of discomfort doing them. I, I think because I, I perceived I didn't have the vocabulary for this that those, those things had no sort of clear object so that there was no there was not necessarily any drama present, so there was no conflict, there was nothing that I, I was doing as I, as I was speaking necessarily in an acting sense, a sort of simple acting structure. And so the absence of that left me feeling a little bit bereft. I, I think there are all kinds of wonderful reasons for doing those projects. And I, and I suspect actually... It was explained to me, but I didn't hear it, which is the other question of of pedagogy. How do you communicate something? How useful is it? And then I suppose the other thing I, I thought, I mean, there you go, thinking about this too from Harry's letter is sometimes teachers don't actually know why they're doing what they're doing because their teachers may not have explained why they were doing what they were doing. And that may have may have been a good thing for them because it meant they they got something. They really got something on a more profound level. So, yeah, kind of up for grabs. Interesting thought. For me, I suspect, Harry, that we, we share some kind of a disposition. Uh, I know that when I started doing my research that, that led to these podcasts, I've, I noticed that I was teaching slightly better. I mean, that's a risky thing to, to say in public, but I, I felt that something had slightly secured, like slotted into me because I had some kind of an understanding, even a beginner's understanding, of the structure of things and the and the and the, the the theory behind them, the ideas that lay behind them, and 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 that's related 
to their history. And, and I, curiously, I kind of felt it shift in my students too. Um, so anyway, great thought, Harry. I, I think it's a complicated thing. Um, but thank you for that. So Harry goes on to say, I find myself reflecting on so many things mentioned in the podcast. Everything seems to be relevant in one way or another to the current state of the institutions. It's strange to be within the current iteration of the school and to feel the echoes of its history affecting my own experience. Nice sentence, Harry. That's beautiful. I have so many thoughts, maybe because I've listened to about 14 hours of pure podcast over the last two days. I'm sorry, sorry about that. I hope you're okay. Um, so any structure to this email may be forgotten. Apologies in advance. No, no need to apologize. It's a great email. The first thing that comes to mind was a comment you read from an old report, I think, about the accents of posher, privately educated people being unsuitable for the stage, which I found fascinating from where we sit now. I'd always thought that RP had always been the golden standard of actor training. Well, not so much anymore, but historically at least. My voice teacher steps his way carefully around regional accents, so I think it might impede the work sometimes. Work on release and freedom of the voice results in my northernness being released full throttle. But when it comes to technique and articulation, it's no help to be dropping every other letter. Certainly would be no help to a paying audience either. I'm thankful that there's no longer an active effort to change a student's accent entirely. But I also recognise that my voice must be changed or developed in some way so that I can use it effectively. I feel at times like I have two voices a voice for release, and a voice for articulation. I was fascinated by the Nadine George conversation and this idea of finding the ugly parts of our voice and unlocking new creativity within that place. Really, really interesting to think about hearing pure, uninhibited life coming from the voices of dying soldiers. What a pedagogy that is. Yeah, isn't it? The, the Wolfson story never ceases to... Um, amaze and move me and the thought that on some I, I still I do I was doing a song at Rose Bruford I was doing the Keep Breathing song beautiful song that Kevin Crawford taught me and Kevin Crawford was taught by Roy Hart and Roy Hart was taught by Alfred Wolfson so the students hopefully um, enjoying that exercise were connecting directly into this line of teachers that goes indeed to um, uh, the, t the terrible suffering of people one night uh, in the First World War um yeah, again. Wow, Harry, what a what a can of worms. Um very complicated, isn't it, I think. Uh I'm not sure. Not sure we've yet sort of resolved this this question. And I think um I think a number of the guests I've had have, have been talking about this um most sort of explicitly in the round table conversation, but but I think I think the question of how do you train how do you how do you lead people how do you give people a context in which they can really change really engage with themselves and and change and learn because i think that's um beautiful i'm i'm consistently moved by education maybe that's very old fashioned i don't i don't know but it, it seems to me like a like a, a a deeply important thing for human beings and i and i'm 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 very caught on a story that my wife told me about her um, her Najmama, her her Najmama being her grandmother, a Najma, a Hungarian grandmother um, called Clara, who'd actually uh, who was at my wedding. She died shortly shortly after, but but Clara had been in um, Auschwitz, so 
uh, Clara had been in the concentration camps and she said to Liz when Liz was little about the importance of education and she she said that that when she was in the camps she'd realized that education was the one thing they couldn't take away from her and I I've thought about that often I think I maybe think about it every day um, I certainly thought about it during my own late adult education as an MA student um, and I think about it when I'm teaching I try to think about it so that that doesn't involve simply people saying um i don't i don't know anything and and what you're doing is already is already perfect and um we should just we should just do what we're doing it, it, it involves engaging in in a point um at which change becomes possible and that, and that point is often is often difficult and involves an element of of self-reflection and um and honesty, and I don't think it's easy in any way. And I think that that has to sit within a, a a way of teaching, which is absolutely alive and alert and attentive to equity and people's rights and all of the imperatives of social justice that have, I think, quite wonderfully come fully or more fully into focus in teaching and in society, I think those things are wonderful. But students still need to learn. They still want to learn. And, and teachers need to engage with teaching. And, and what we change into, I think, and how we change is a, is a, is a deeply political space. Um, and I think we're fooling ourselves if we, if we pretend that it, that it isn't. So I don't know how to develop a, a really, and these are words, of course, that are, that are around a lot at the moment, but, but they've always concerned me um something which is inclusive and something which is um plural um a place where people actually find find freedom without sort of imposing aesthetics that's really complicated and um and i too harry am delighted that um drama schools no longer impose accents on students they haven't done that at any point during my training or teaching career I have to say so I don't know whether that was something that was still happening in the 90s it was certainly extinct in the schools I taught at um, from the early noughties onwards and all of the the accent and dialect coaches and speech teachers and, and voice teachers I worked with were people of um, sort of considerable delicacy and knowledge and, and nuance when it came to these questions but yes how do you give somebody um, and I you know I'm somebody who's whose accent was changed not by drama school I didn't go to drama school but by going to a grammar school in the 80s I know that I shifted my sound and that's something I sort of regret and I think it's one of the reasons why I'm I'm very careful when I teach to respect somebody's sound and the place where they come from I think often some of the clumsier comments and the more hurtful ones actually come from from outside directors or or even sometimes acting teachers I don't know I, I my feeling is that my my people the voice people are pretty smart about this I certainly hope they are um and yeah it is fascinating isn't it? <laughs> the, the problem the reason why the drama school had to be set up was because more middle class people were coming into the acting profession and there was something strangulated about the way they spoke I mean in a way that that comment came came from something I read last week I think or a few weeks ago in a way, that's as problematic as anything else to me. Um, you have to value somebody's sound. But then you want to expand the possibilities. You want you want people to be able to do everything. That, again, is sort of a little bit um, 
out of fashion as a thought. Um, I don't really know why. I think the idea of expanding the things that somebody can do with themselves, physically, vocally, psychologically, I think that's, I, I still think that's good. I, I haven't quite signed up to the idea that that's, that's in itself a problem. I, I'm still interested in transformation. Um, but, I, you know, I'm aware of some arguments on the other side. Anyway, so another, another big question. Yeah, I agree. I've also been thinking about the relationship between the drama school and the university from the podcast on accreditation and what training for what theatre. What training for what theatre indeed in the Covid age? Anyway, what a thing it would have been to have experienced the unhinged, unregulated drama school. Yeah, I think I imagine I'm romanticising it somewhat, but nevertheless, my school is firmly under the jurisdiction of the Manchester Metropolitan University, which proves to be an endless source of annoyance which would explain my longing for the free drama school. Yeah, I, th I think the free drama school, I mean, I think it's fun to romanticise it too. I, I'm preparing a podcast on the London Theatre Studio, which was uh, Michel Saint-Denis' first school in London in the 1930s, the mid-1930s, to, 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 to opening of the Second World War. Yeah, I think the free drama school was a pretty complicated place. I'm sure sometimes it was glorious, and I'm sure sometimes it was abusive, and I'm, I'm pretty sure sometimes it was incompetent i suspect it was many things many 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 things i think and, I, and i've spoken to some older teachers who who or older students i think the drama school had got itself to a pretty good place actually of sort of not not a perfect place but a, a pretty good place of professionalism somewhere during the 80s and 90s uh, and noughties not perfect by any means i'm sure and i'm sure there are many stories lots of people go to to drama schools and there are lots of them but the, the drama school I met in various ways and I worked at Arts Ed and Central and East 15 and Rada and Lambda and a few other places the Lear in Dublin anyway a few places um, was was a good combination of of creativity and professionalism I would say so yeah it's fun to imagine isn't it the, uh, the unbridled full drama school very creative but I suspect there were some um, shadows lurking around harry goes on i imagine it's a case of funding due to the limited number of courses offered by the school mmu built us a gorgeous new building but they also tried to pressure the school into accepting a hundred first years so the grapevine says we currently sit at a year of around 36 ish an economic by decision by mmu being passed off as an educational decision something about excitement and innovation very astute Yes, it's something. It's disturbing, isn't it? I think. I think institutions do that. I think. I think they can't help it. So exactly. I think quite often, economic decisions are leading to educational decisions, and then they're dressed in a slightly more attractive um, cloak. Yes. I mean, I don't know if you. I don't know anything about this situation, and don't mean to um, uh, engage in any kind of reputational um, insult. Uh, who know, Who knows? I don't know. But I think um, I have known cases where something similar has happened. Quite disturbingly, actually, once or twice. I'm not going to say what. But yeah, I've been around some things that actually have left me with a pretty um, bad taste in my mouth. I imagine and hope we might be in the process of returning to a drama school outside of the higher education system that allows it to be more free-flowing. Hearing stories of aspiring actors being referred to schools and teachers and taking up apprenticeship teaching roles at schools feels like a myth. 
I can't imagine the higher education system would ever allow for such a flow of creativity without an incredible amount of procedure and bureaucracy. I'd love to see a return to the ensemble-based school stroke company. We had a class in the first term called Ensemble taught in the Polish tradition, which did seem, as I think you said about the ensemble model, utopian. Yeah. I'm curious to know what you think about actor training in the age of COVID. I'm very conscious of the fact that my training so far has been deeply defined by what stage of restrictions the country has been under. Online classes in period dance, articulation and animal studies have been particularly challenging. And I wonder how much us first years have missed out on. Teachers have assured us they'll do their best to catch us up. But how can you catch up on the drama school experience of submersion and intensity? What do you make of COVID training? Yeah, um, I don't know. I think think we're going to have to think about this one for a long time aren't we i mean i i'm i wanted to do a podcast about this actually on march the 13th and i did talk to to a, a lovely ex-student um but unfortunately the line wasn't very good and when i listened back i didn't think the the quality was was um was usable uh, unfortunately um i've taught nearly all the way through I, I i was teaching on i was teaching on march the 13th the day the schools closed uh, I did a project in the sort of the, the chaotic aftermath when we were trying to work out what to do, and then um, and then I was furloughed by Lambda, so I had a period then of not teaching, and then I was lucky enough to get some work at Res Bruford in September, and then I taught I've taught more or less full time whenever we've been allowed to, and of course history will remember that performing arts schools colleges went back much earlier, so actually students at drama schools. Have I think this is true, more or less, been lucky-ish in that we've been in rooms working together, masked, socially distanced a lot of the time. Um, so, yeah, uh, Harry, I've been through the whole the whole thing alongside you. Um, complicated, isn't it? My feelings, some, some days are, I'm proud that we've kept going. I think the drama schools in, ge- in general, the ones I know, have done really well. I'm, I think people have worked really hard um, and students, of course, have had to put up with a lot and 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 endure those exhausting days on zoom when we all get weird headaches like a particular type of headache we've never had before and hopefully won't have since um it's a it's of limited value isn't it you the thing that struck me early on is that you can do something and that's something to do with with human resourcefulness that that you've got some time you've got some people you've got some technology you can make things you can do stuff and that stuff is is not is not unvaluable it has some value. It has some meaning. Um, I've been involved in making some things that I, I thought were really special, actually. We did a, an online pantomime at East 15 with the MAs. Um, I shared the direction with a colleague and, and it became very, it was very COVID concerned. There was lots of satire and um, and fun and some some real poignant stuff. In fact, of course, of course, of course, what's happened is that COVID has generated poetry in various ways um as 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 it will but you know it's not the same and i can see in the bodies of students i work with and i can hear in their voices i can i can see i think the effect of this period so there's a cost there's a cost there's been a cost to all of us and i'm not sure we know what that is yet um can can we recover from our injuries i i hope so let's let's assume so it's the only it's the only helpful thought i think is that by keeping going and by 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 
by training in this situation, we kept moving and then let's just decide we can be, we can be caught up. But I, I think that story really remains to be fully told, the question of teaching in the age of COVID. I hope we don't, I hope we don't get too into it, Harry. I, I'm aware of this notion of blended learning. It's certainly, there are certainly some things you can do well on Zoom, it's fine. I, I, as I think I said earlier, I some, I've taken classes as well. I've trained with my good friend Arena Brown and a few other people, and um, Scott Tross. I've been doing stuff with the Meisner Institute. Good, t- good teachers, good classes. I've met some interesting students. Um, I, I feel like we shouldn't get too comfortable with that. I feel like it's probably an error. Probably I should save up the the money and hop on a train and stay overnight and. And keep doing classes in rooms with people. I, I suspect, um, I suspect we we shouldn't get too comfortable with this. I think it's a, I think it risks being a, a a, a kind of slow disaster for the drama school. Um, n- not that there was any choice, but I think, I think, I think we should remember that. Good. Hope I don't get into trouble. I don't think so. I don't think anybody. Anybody notices me. Good. Um, yeah, history of the... Oh, hang on. Yeah, okay, good. Sorry. So he then says, Harry says, I've also been thinking about the disconnect between the outside perception of the drama school when you're trying to get in and then the actual drama school experience. My acting teacher described it at the end of the first term as everything like you thought and nothing like you thought. I was thinking about these Facebook charlatans. Harry, steady. I'm, I'm always much more delicate when I talk about these things. I'm sure there are lots of excellent teachers flogging their wares on, on, on Facebook. And their various virtual wares and how the audition process, and in particular, the preparation for the audition process, is nothing like the actual training. I don't think that the various tricks I learned to pull out when monologuing represent what kind of actor I would be under a psychophysical ensemble-based training. Maybe I'm only seeing it from one side, but I wonder how the almost universal structure of one classical and one contemporary monologue came about. A history of the audition process in the drama school would be an interesting provocation, I think. So a few things there. One, I think in the podcast with... um, Sorry, this is becoming kind of a podcast uh, revision session. Um, But Ed Ed, um, Hicks of the Oxford School of Drama... um, towards the end of that podcast gives a wonderful sort of um, little bit of advice to anybody doing a a self-tape for an audition. And I've been thinking about it a lot. And I sometimes coach people um, in drama school auditions and I do it these days, especially in a very light way. I I sort of, I don't really give the people any coaching on the the speeches themselves. I talk about imagination and I talk about engagement and I try and get them to be curious about what's going on and to find an expression which is theirs. Um, I'm always happy to to help anybody but but the idea of sort of sort of fixing somebody's audition speech I think is is one is the, the drama schools are very attentive to that they can you can sort of see if what somebody's offering you is a presentation of somebody else's ideas you can see it very quickly and I think in most drama schools certainly the ones where I've sat on panels that doesn't help I mean that's almost you try and see through that then to something else going on inside the person. So I think good um, drama school audition coaching is something which which sort of works with the with the actor and with their imagination. That that I think is 
is is useful. I think there's a there's kind of a problem there, isn't there? That that means that people can pay for that, and that means that there's a sort of um, uh, an inequity operating on the the drama school audition process. That's that's an interesting thing to think about. However, the other thing is to say, yeah, auditions are crazy. I mean, they always are. I remember Peter Brook said once. Um, he stopped doing auditions really early on because he realized that the person who gave the best audition was never the best actor. These are simple terms, I know. But anyway, let's pretend it's, it's a story. It's a story. The person who gave the best audition was never the best actor. And the person who gave the worst audition was never the worst actor. And everything else was, was up for grabs. And that's kind of true. I think in the best audition processes, there are workshops and there are, there are classes and there are different encounters and what the the faculty are trying to to perceive in people is is potential and suitability for the particular program or suitability to the activity of training and maybe also of of making work as a as a performer as an actor so i think that students often see auditions as kind of hurdles to be to be got through and jumped over and places to show that you're good um and I completely understand why one would feel that, but they're really not. Certainly, nobody I've ever worked with is 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 working at so crude a level. So in- interesting thought. I did some research, Harry. So I did a little bit of research. I was trying to find out. I thought that's a really interesting question. Um, so I'm going to read you something that I, I found. So I, I found something in the Tatler from April the 4th, 1906. What the Academy of Dramatic Art is doing by George Bancroft, its administrator. So you're about to hear a description of what's happening right very close to the beginning. It's a couple of years after its foundation. The first school. It's curious to note that while in other countries good training schools for the stage are regarded as a necessity, we had no serious attempts to establish a real academy for the study of dramatic art in all its branches until Mr. Tree founded the present institution. This was in the spring of 1904, and Mr. Tree's efforts met with so much encouragement and ultimate success that the Academy of Dramatic Art at 62 Gower Street, WC, is now firmly established and will, it is hoped, do much good work in the future. I'm, I'm sure that's true. Complicated place, though, though rather is and continues to be. It's growth and counsel. But Mr. Tree, for the first two years, bought, and then there's a boring bit where we find out about a different, in a different place, maybe I'll read it. But anyway. Um, goes on to talk about how the institution works. Next bit. It's institutions and training. The staff of instructors include such well-known artists as Mr. James Fernandez, Mr. J. Fisher-White, Miss Crow, Miss Rosina Philippi, who we love, and Miss Cavallazzi. We naturally provide in the training for every branch of the actor's art, elocution, diction, voice production, pantomime and gesture, dancing and fencing, the last two items being ably taught by Mr. Louis Hervey Degville, and Mademoiselle Felix, or Madame, I suppose, Felix Bertrand. We hope to see the Academy not only prosperous in itself, but to a large extent taking the place of the old stock companies as a training ground for the embryo actor. We've been around this before, haven't we? But there you go, so that's that. The pupils. 1906. The pupils have hitherto averaged 87 a term, and many of them were highly praised at the public performance given by the Academy in February 1905. The session. So this is the structure of, of the first version of Rada. The academic year consists of 33 weeks divided into three equal terms, beginning in the middle of January and about the 1st of May in October. 
Our next term begins on April the 28th, just a few days ago. And in the final school of the coming term, special classes will be taken by Lady Bancroft, Mr John Hare and Mr George Alexander. An entrance examination is held before the beginning of each term for the admission of candidates. This consists of any short recitations which the candidate may select. So there you go, um, Harry. So in 1906, you auditioned before the beginning of each term, and it was called an entrance examination. And it consisted of any short recitations that the candidate may select. So that was 1906. And then... um, and this isn't a very thorough piece of research, but I, I, I did find a few things. Then I found this article from 1911. So again, really early in the history of, um, of, of the uh, British Drama School. And this one's called Stage Training, Training at the Academy of Dramatic Art by Penelope York. And it was first published in Every Woman's Encyclopedia, Volumes 2 and 3, 1911. And this is a really nice article and it has a picture. So I'm going to send you, I'll, maybe I'll make this the, um, the cover. A trying ordeal, the candidate for admission must recite a passage previously studied which has been chosen by the examiners. So by 1911, it looks like um, um, you have to do something which has been chosen. And I'll give a little description of that in a sec. So there we've got two, two, maybe two models of the drama school audition in terms of recitation, both pieces. In the first one, um, you can choose what you like. A few years later, the examiners are choosing what you recite. And that distinction still exists today. Um, Some schools say, do what you want to do. Some say, do one modern, one classical. Yes, that's kind of the standard. Some have a a recommended list. I think that's still going on. So let's see what, um, what the article says. I'll read a bit. It's quite fun. Part one is the necessity of training for a successful career on the stage, opinions of Miss Ellen Terry and Miss Winifred Emery, the working of a school of acting, entrance examination, fees. So we're going to get to the entrance examination. I'll read the first paragraph. It's kind of fun. I want to go on the stage. How often one hears that cry. But usually she who utters it has no idea how to set about it. She is anxious to enter theatre land, but cannot find the door there too. Heartbreaking. It's generally conceded nowadays that in no profession, be it commercial or artistic, can anyone succeed without some special training or apprenticeship. So it's interesting. So as well as this stock company thing, there's a general movement going on in the world. I think there, there always is that starts to lead to the foundation of these schools. Even a heaven sent genius, and they are rare enough, must learn the technique of his trade. And the stage is no different from any other profession. Though often stage-struck girls think they have only to walk onto the boards of a theatre and they will be able to act. Perhaps they have a little amateur experience. Often, sorry, reading from a newspaper was tricky. Often this has to be unlearned and kind friends in the front rows have beamed and applauded and hailed the Tyro as a budding Sarah Bernhardt. But the theatrical manager is made of very different stuff from those well-meaning friends. Oh, that's 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 heartbreaking, isn't it? We all know that feeling. At the opening of the Academy of Dramatic Art, Miss Ellen Terry, who was herself a child of the stage, said, those who are gifted with the power to act can and must be taught. We claim for acting that it is an art, but our art, like any other, cannot be practised without a training. Miss Winifred Emery recently said, to the girl who has dramatic capabilities and intends to adopt the stage, not as an amusement, but as a serious career, I say, go in for a proper training. 
An axiom of the profession often quoted is acting cannot be taught, but this, contradictory as it may seem, only means that the inspiration, the spirit, the genius of acting cannot be taught, and this applies to any art. The divine spark cannot be implanted by any number of teachers. A school such as the Academy of Dramatic Art, situated at 52 Gower Street, right in the heart of London, does not claim to be anything more than a sort of turnstile through which an aspirant after stage honours would do well to pass. To have graduated in such an academy and won a certificate of merit, now BA of course, awarded for industry and distinguished merit by the examiners, proclaims that she has at least learned the technique of her art. And, says a well-known critic, the value of even the most highly developed intuitive acting must be enhanced by the addition of technical skill. Let us examine the schools of number, the doors of number 62. People like going into the doors of drama schools. Um, Michael Billington does it, um, I don't know, 50 years later. I'll read it to you sometimes, fun. And examine the workings of this school of acting. There we meet its very able and genial administrator, Mr. Kenneth Barnes, a brother of those two distinguished actresses, the Mrs. Violet and Irene Vanborough. One cannot but be struck from the outset by the common sense and business-like way he talks of the stage as a profession. There are no alluring and vague prospects offered to intending pupils. In novelettes, the beautiful heroine has only to step in front of the footlights after having recited a little in private, and her fame and fortune are made. But Mr Barnes soon disperses any of these wonderful dreams. He says, work, work, and yet again, work. I mean, Kenneth Barnes, rod is a mystery, an ongoing mystery, because it, it dominates... Um, the drama school in various ways um and in yet sort of paradoxically rada's apart from sort of giving the world rada rada hasn't really given much certainly in terms of sort of specific pedagogy and and ken barnes kenneth barnes who everyone says was a genial man it's sort of the thing people say about kenneth barnes um sort of presides over the the maybe the dark days of rada the days when people like Joan Littlewood went and hated it and left all the way up into the nineteen, the nineteen fifties when it gets taken over um, by John Fernall and and begins to change into I think a very fine school, but curiously I think that probably happens quite so late in its history, um, at which point its reputation was already to some degree well both sort of firmly in place but also the the, the sort of shadow reputation of Rada I think was firmly in place and I suspect both those still operate. On its um, its sort of uh, cultural capital in a complicated way. Anyway, sorry, getting lost. Harry, here we go. So, before a girl can enter the academy, she must first pass an entrance examination, which is held before the beginning of each term. The examination consists of the recitation by the candidate of one of several passages chosen by the examiners, which is given to her to study beforehand. Although this test is not a mountain of difficulty, it demands a certain amount of aptitude for stage work on the part of the candidate, and the passages are chosen from, say, Shakespeare and such a play as Cast. So Cast is um, Cast is a cup and saucer play. Um, so <laughs> there you go. So from the mid nineteenth century. So uh, and sort of performed in the Prince of Wales Theatre, if memory serves, which is a little theatre. So a sort of early experiment in um in naturalism i suppose a different kind of style of acting 
So there you go. So right there we are, right at the beginning. Um, sort of a classical piece and kind of a, a modern piece. Yeah, cast is a, a contemporary play in 1911. In order, ah, in order that she may have the opportunity for the display of some emotional power. The examiners are quick to detect latent ability and promise. And provided they are there, the candidate finds herself enrolled as a student. If there is promise, if there are possibilities, the academy undertakes to bring them to fruition. The entrance fee for this examination is one guinea. I reckon that's quite a lot of money, one guinea. As, as I'm sure many listeners know, the whole question of entrance fees for auditions is another sort of point of, of contention um, in ways that I, I understand it both from the point of view of, of sort of the, the question of exclusion so the sort of the, the politics of excluding people because they can't afford to pay. But also there's a problem for drama schools because they receive huge numbers of applicants, which they see, and that means the audition process is um, hugely expensive to the school. I remember listening to um, uh, Sarah Frankham, who who did an interesting thing of lowering tuition fee, uh, audition fees um, at Lambda and said in, the, in a meeting, spoke about the fact that, um, she, having looked at the paperwork, I think, she'd realised the schools weren't making any profit uh, but that that was a perception from the outside. So a perception from the outside is that a school like Lambda was actually making money from um, charging people for auditions. The reality was actually that I think it was losing money or, or, you know, seeking to break even. It's expensive. But anyway, so what was a guinea? What was a guinea in 1911? Let's have a look. Well, interestingly, so I've had a little, little, little Google around and I think a guinea in 1911 was worth over 100 certainly over 100 pounds so the the fee for the entrance examination sort of equivalent was was considerable i mean i guess what what are they now sometimes 60 quid something like that so a not more a little bit more expensive but not a completely dissimilar kind of amount of money so enough to to be a sort of serious um expense um but something which uh, I suppose one might sort of hope to 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 raise if you were really 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 keen to. Um, hmm. The year is divided into three terms of eleven weeks each, and that's the same as before. The fees for the full course are twelve guineas a term, payable at the commencement of each term. But provision is now being made for those with exceptional talent who are not well blessed with this world's goods. So long as the council shall order a scholarship is awarded at the end of each term to the student who, during his or her first term, shall be considered to have shown the most marked ability in general industry in all the branches of work. This scholarship provides for free tuition for three terms. Twelve guineas, that's going to be £1,400. So actually significantly, significantly cheaper. So there we go. So quite expensive to apply, but um, but reasonable fees if you get in. So that's not bad. So if you go to if you go to Rada in in nineteen eleven, it costs you um a few a few thousand quid. Um, probably about a third of of well, I suppose now you'd have it would cost you twenty seven grand for the whole for the whole training. Good. Going to return to um um Harry's letter. So there you go. Harry. Looks kind of like kind of similar actually, to be honest. Um. I always have a ton of questions after listening to every podcast and have taken to writing down areas to research each time. The depth and breadth of knowledge you have, you are acquiring about this labyrinth of a history is so well conveyed and explained. Thank you for that. Well, well, thank you. I'm not sure it always is, but I really appreciate that. Thank you, Harry. 
The effort that must go into every episode is clear. I could quite happily spend my whole life jumping from school to school over the whole continent, but your podcast is just as good. I'm not sure it is just as good, but we'll keep on doing our best. I constantly recommend it to my classmates to a point of annoyance, I think, but it's that vital to the understanding of the training. Anyway, Rob, thank you for reading my ramblings. They weren't, they were brilliant. You said that a lot of teachers listen to the podcast, but please know that by doing this, you're also helping any student who listens understand and advance their training. Cheers. I'm looking forward to all future episodes. Well, thank you again, Harry, for giving us um, stuff to talk about this week. Um, maybe we'll do those occasionally. If you if you feel so inclined, drop me drop me a letter. I would really be interested in people who have different points of view. Maybe somebody could drop me a line about their experience of, of training in the COVID age. Um, good, bad, indifferent. I could read something anonymously um, because it's definitely a history we're going to need to, um, to to get down at some point. And maybe there is even some value in that, some some process of, of um, I don't know, I, I, healing, I suppose, because uh, I reckon we're all a bit traumatized, is my hunch, by the past wee while. Anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the History of Actor Training in the British Drama School podcast. Uh, hope to talk to you all soon. Um, have a good week. Things seem to be getting better and better. Um, I've, I've seen people working in rooms without masks again. Uh, it's, it's, it's lovely to see and brilliant to be, to be working. So, yeah, take care. Thank you. Bye.